Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the premiere episode of the Luxury Stands podcast, the official podcast of the Luxury Roundtable. I'm Scott Kerr, founder and president of luxury brand consultancy, Silvertone Consulting. And I'm here with my co-host and founder of the Luxury Roundtable, Mickey Alam Khan. Hi, Mickey. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to kick off our podcast series with you. What's the Luxury Roundtable? I'm so excited to be part of this. I think you should perhaps share just a little bit with our listeners of what they're going to expect. Excellent. So, uh, Scott, you know that I spent a few decades covering luxury and, you know, having founded publications, conferences, uh, conducted research. I came to a very quick conclusion uh, a few years ago that, you know, while I was informing and educating the audience, I wasn't closing the loop, bringing the experts to people who needed the expertise. And so with that was born the idea of Luxury Roundtable, uh, a dialogue-oriented, uh, research-based, uh, and um, uh, platform for folks in the luxury business across different sectors to talk to experts and build up their own expertise as they go and interact with affluent and high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals. Luxury Roundtable is basically a network for luxury professionals, luxury marketers, wealth managers, and anyone who is basically working with ultra high net worth and high net worth people. And they want to know, all right, can I talk their lingo? Do Am I up to speed with the latest trends in the business, whether you're in real estate or you're in luxury goods and services or in hospitality? It spans all sectors. So it's a membership-driven organization. Uh, and it's also a plug-and-play luxury program. If you're a company and you need to make sure that your staff have to be completely up to speed with what's going on in the world of luxury, across the world, across industry sectors, and not just from a publication standpoint, but something where if you need to recommend a yacht broker, guess what? We know yacht brokers. If you need to recommend someone in private jet aviation, we know someone there. But you, the member, become the expert in the eyes of your clients. So that's the whole underpinning of Luxury Roundtable. We want to become a center of excellence for our members, and we also want to be their platform and luxury program. What do you think was missing out there that this fills? I think, as I said, it's closing the loop. Most publications out there, and look, I've been in media for 31 plus years, and I've launched five publications, about 20 conferences. And I can tell you that just giving the information is not enough nowadays. You have to lead people sometimes and take them where they need to go because in this day and age of clutter and noise, you need someone who's going to say, all oh, right, if you need expertise in luxury marketing, here are the five top people here you need to talk to. If you need help in luxury retail, luxury consulting, luxury branding, experts like you, that's what we are bringing to the table is bringing the experts, bringing expert know-how and knowledge and making sure that you as a member get something more than just reading a newsletter every morning or every afternoon, you see? Yeah. Even with newsletters, I'm only sending it twice a week. Less is more, but better. And part of being a member of Luxury Roundtable, of course, is access to this podcast. So 
I would love to kick things off by talking about, call it trouble in the land of luxury, or I've heard words like the great luxury slowdown. It's really been the first one since the pandemic. And all signs are pointing to the end of the roaring 20s. And while the bad moon rising hasn't risen yet, it just seems the poor economic climate of the third quarter of 2023 is affecting the luxury goods sector. What, what are you seeing? I don't want to jump on a bandwagon because I think that's what media does. Yeah. And we have to be very careful because, you know, there are a few luxury groups that didn't perform, but there are many who did. And if you're benchmarking against the pandemic, that's not right because the pandemic created artificial conditions. People were trapped. Uh, they had more discretionary spending since they weren't traveling. So they diverted all of that to luxury goods and services. So I would say that if you have to benchmark, you should benchmark against 2019 and not yeah. 2021 and 2022, because I think those years were very abnormal in terms of growth. What I'm seeing, though, is, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about uh, uncertainty because of the geopolitical and economic environment. Absolutely. I mean, you've got two wars going on in this world. Uh, and you've got numerous uh, conflicts that are, you know, low level around the place. Uh, you have a China market that is slowing down a bit because of yeah. the real estate situation there as well. Uh, so, you know, these factors do affect global uh, bottom lines. But if you look at groups such as LVMH, LVMH did fairly well. Yeah, some markets slowed down, but maybe they didn't meet uh, Wall Street's expectations, you know, which are always sky high, but right. they still were in a positive territory. Hermes, who we talk about, uh, absolutely positive territory. Richemont came out with its results and, uh, you know, they own Cartier and Van Cleef and Apples mm -hmm. and all those brands. Guess what? Very strong in Asia Pacific. Yeah. And yes, they did complain about, uh, uh, you know, uh, muddy outlook with the geopolitical environment, but they were absolutely uh, uh, gangbusters in their jewelry and, um, uh, watches categories then you look at caring caring to me is a different story you know they've got a problem with gucci right. the flagship brand which accounts for practically most of their revenue uh, they don't have a firm leader there right now right they've just got a temporary leader and they've always had this uh, cult of a creator director who molds gucci in his own image and the link to the heritage is very tenuous so Gucci has to work on its act. I think in a couple of years, they'll get the act together. Uh, but Prada has performed. Brunella Cuccinelli has performed. Mm -hmm. uh, all these brands are performing. Maybe they don't have 20 25% growth. But I think I'd be happy between 5 and 10%, which is what most brands uh, have posted. Yeah. And what's happening now with luxury good, this luxury good slowdown is we are seeing the industry separating the winners from the losers the cream from the milk and the cream are the players that seem to have this premium positioning, this classic styling and a wealthy client base like Hermes. You can talk about Prada, Bruno Cuccinelli, even LVMH's Laura Piana has been a standout among, you know, that, that uh, large conglomerate. So what do you think? Um, you, you bring up some very interesting brands. If you look at um, Laura Piana, Brunella Cuccinelli, Hermes, all of the brands are very true to their DNA. 
and they emphasize quality. I know that everyone talks about, hey, quality is a given, design is a given, or you need to focus on the story, you need to focus on this. No, no, no. They're not givens. Uh, very often when luxury brands try to go a little mess, they do cut corners. What you're seeing with Hermes is they don't cut corners. Brunella still sticks to quality of materials, sustainability. They still stick to artisanship and craftsmanship. They communicate that story. And above all, the at Brunello, uh, the founder plays a very key role in maintaining the brand's uh, trajectory. Same with the Hermes uh, uh, group. Uh, the family is very deeply involved. Uh, they, they can grow even faster, but they plan their growth. And uh, with Laura Pian, obviously, it's part of LVMH. But uh, even there, the emphasis on quality, on design, on exclusivity, that's paramount. Another distinction between Hermes and the other brands is, whereas the other brands have pivoted more towards celebrity and, uh, you know, celebrities basically uh, drive those brands with Hermes celebrities need Hermes, right. Hermes doesn't need them. You see, that is the positioning of Hermes, that they're above celebrity. They're there as a sign of elegance. I can't say the same. I'm not going to mention yeah. some names of the rival brands, but Hermes has got its positioning absolutely right. Right. It's more about community over celebrity. Yes. They don't engage in celebrity marking. There's no ambassadors being paid to wear its bags or other items. And it's helped the brand to differentiate itself and limit spending on promotions as other big brands become increasingly locked in arms race for celebrity-driven buzz. And while most luxury brands are obsessed with controlling the narrative, especially when it concerns flagship products, Hermes has generally let its voracious community speak for its for it speak for it instead. Absolutely right. And even if you look at the Hermes uh, product lineup, look, most of the revenue for that company comes from leather goods. All right. And think about it, the Birkin bag accounts for more than fifty percent of Hermes's revenue. You can't even find that bag in a store. Now right. that is the biggest. Uh, I mean, it is highly unusual for any retail category to basically not show their bag in the store, and yet that product account for more than 50% of sales. What have they done? They've created this desire, this drive, this need, this want. That's what they do. You know, Bernard Arnault, the CEO of LVMH, he was asked uh, a while ago, you know, about uh, the company's performance. So he said, look, I'm not interested in the next quarter or in the next couple of quarters. He said, I'm more focused on whether my brands will be desirable in 10 years. And so now I'm seeing all these brands out there, including Hermes, start using the word desirability yeah. and desire in all their communications, whether it's their earnings press releases or their regular press releases. Right. Uh, it's there in LVMH's language. It's there even in Richemont's language now. Desire, creating desire. So that is what Hermes does, is it creates desire uh, through its store experience. When you walk into an Hermes store, you know, it's cl clean, it's calm, but it's also vibrant. There's color, 
in an Hermes store, if you notice. Yeah. The palette is beige, but against the beige palette, you see all these products standing out. Right. And that is very important because it 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 basically seduces you through the eyes and through the ambiance. I remember when, uh, I think it was a, an earnings call, I don't know if it was a year or so ago, uh, Mr. Dumas said, in difficult, I think he said this is how, how it goes, in difficult times, there is what you call a flight to quality, and we have benefited from that. Yes. Uh, they've always emphasized quality, craftsmanship, savoir-faire. Uh, you know, that's another term that's basically getting currency across the board. LVMH just came out with a new prize for savoir-faire. Right. Um, and, you know, it's the emphasis on craftsmanship. That's another issue that these luxury brands are facing is basically talent. And I'm not just talking about marketing talent or retail talent. Retail is a problem because there's a high turnover in stores, regardless of the brand. But you're talking about craftsmen and craftswomen. I mean, that is a major issue. The pandemic really took out a whole category of craftsmen, especially in Italy, because these people left the industry and then they didn't come back. Right. And the younger generation wants to sit at desks and work on computers and they don't want to, uh, you know, kind of thread a needle. They don't want to stitching. They don't want to do repetitive tasks. So it's become a very challenging environment for all these brands so what they're trying to do is they're trying to elevate the art of manufacturing luxury goods through prizes through uh exposés at stores and you know in chicago they had a whole thing on uh, hermes had a whole how do we make hermes products kind of uh display and they're trying to entice people to come in and youngsters and come in and become apprentices and they're uh, you know, make bags and dresses and stuff like that. But Hermes gets the message right because they always stress uh, quality of people, quality of material, uh, quality of experiences for the customers. And I think at the end of the day, when you have money and you reach a certain stage in your life, you expect more from the brands that you patronize. Right. Always uh, fly to quality when you reach a certain stature in your life because you feel you deserve it and Hermes is there at that end uh, it becomes a brand that is rewarding you for your hard work and that's very clear like you know like uh you know when you have reached a certain stage in your life you've bought a boatload of Hermes goods then you can basically put your name on the list for the yeah. Birkin bag and that's what real luxury consumers continue to buy Maybe they are buying a little bit less, but they don't compromise on the quality of what they buy. And such is the case with Hermes and a few other brands we talked about. Absolutely. What else do you think it is about Hermes that stokes this desire, you know, creates demand and grows sales without diluting its positioning or perception in the marketplace? Obviously, craftsmanship plays a large part of it. That fuels the desire. They've never had to deal with assembly line production each bag, like you said, was is, is made by a single artisan from the beginning to the end. But it's also about their timeless design. You know, while luxury brands throughout the sector celebrate heritage and historic branding codes, none relies more heavily on time-tested designs to power its leather goods than, than Hermes. Yes, you're absolutely right, Scott. Uh, Scott, if, if I have to make a comparison, 
you look at key sectors and you look at the top brands in each sector. So if you're looking at um, fashion and leather goods, I put Hermes right at the top mm-hmm. when it comes to the positioning. I'd also look at in the automotive sector, I'd look at uh, Rolls-Royce and Bentley. Uh, and you see how, I mean, you're talking about a soft market or you know, a challenging market this year for luxury, but you're just looking at the fashion and um, uh, leather goods and you know the hard luxury goods category. When you look at jets, sales have gone up dramatically. Yep. You look at cars, yeah, Rolls-Royce had its best year ever in its company's history. Same thing with Bentley. You see, there is money out there, regardless of uh, you know skirmishes around the world and all that. Uh, pockets that are safe, people want products that basically reflect their values. And what Hermes does is it is basically eternal values, uh, values that symbolize that, you know, um, I recognize quality, I recognize uh, craftsmanship, I recognize something that is not ephemeral, something that can last me a lifetime. That is the original notion of luxury. Uh, fashion is diametrically opposite, where you know you have to change season to season. Luxury is basically eternal. It's supposed to last a lifetime. So Hermes's positioning is more towards the end of luxury and less towards uh, the fashion part of it. And even when you look at their merchandise, they've got they've uh, you know entered beauty a few years ago, and now they've got a new line of cosmetics uh, they're going for right. uh, eye makeup. Uh, they had uh, lipsticks before that. I mean, their lipsticks are hardly expensive, but guess what? People love the packaging. I mean, you you see the photography, you see the, uh, you know, even that small lipstick comes in that trademark orange and brown box, you see? And people go in there and they specifically walk out. I mean, I always look at, when I go to these prestigious malls or you, if I go to stores, I always like to see the expression of people as they walk out of the store with their bags. Yeah. Is it happy? Is it satisfied? I mean, if we if we did a big survey and took just photographs of people walking out of different brand stores, you'd understand the mood and the way they perceive the brand and the shopping Spain site. Even that little five-second glimpse or glimmer will tell you what is it that they've internalized from that experience. So yeah. Hermes gets that right. You've described it perfectly is how can you take up space in these customers' minds and then fill up that space with real value, elements that can inspire their curiosity and make them feel alive? And that's what I think Hermes does. I mean, this is what luxury brands need to constantly be thinking about it. And Hermes does it perfectly is, what is the feeling we can create for the customer and which channel is the most appropriate to deliver that feeling? And like you said, when they're walking out of that store, you're filling up that space that makes them feel alive and makes them feel good. I think Maya Angelou said something about feelings, right? It's, uh, you know, what you remember about these encounters, the way you felt, it's the feelings. And I think whether you're, uh, you know, an executive, you know, in the luxury goods business or you're in yachts or, you know, watches and leather goods, whatever category you're in, real estate, you know, your interaction with your customers is key. When you walk in, you represent your brand, right? And you have to conduct yourself with dignity, with a sense of elegance. And think about it. Like, 
if you had to describe, I mean, Scott, I'd ask you, I mean, in one or two words, describe Hermes, what, what words would you use? Um, so craftsmanship immediately comes to mind. And, and that's the first thing, true, true craftsmanship. I don't know. That's kind of the feeling I get from it. And I always picture, you know, there are very few brands that I picture where, where something is handmade. The love is put behind this. And I talked about before having a single artisan involved in it from the beginning to the end. That's how I picture Hermes. And that's the value that I get from it, that I know there's somebody working behind this thing who is dedicated to making this beautiful product every time. And I'm willing to pay for that, for that type of love that goes into, you know, creating each bag. What you're saying is basically a bespoke experience. Yeah. See? And that is what every luxury professional should be offering their client, a bespoke experience. You know, it's very easy to be seduced by AI and all that kind of stuff there. But when you're dealing with high net worth and ultra high net worth people, they have all the tools at their disposal. What they need is a human interaction that basically uh, makes them comfortable that bows them, but is not over the top. They want an experience when they buy from an Hermes or they interact with an Hermes uh, store representative, or if they're going to a Laura Piana, they want that hush and that elegance and that quiet, but they also want the knowledge. They don't want it to be uh, obtrusive, you see? So it has to be done in a very, very subtle manner, but also convey uh, the values of the brand and the values of the brand I have to, like in Hermes's case, as you pointed out, craftsmanship, attention to detail, those are all key if you have to survive long-term as a luxury brand. Because look at each group out there. Uh, you know, Richemont has about 15 to 20 brands in its portfolio. Right. LVMH has 75 brands. Um, you know, um, uh, Swatch Group has quite a few watch brands in their group. And then you get 15 or 20 from uh caring and, and there are a couple of others like prada and all these guys you're looking at about 200 luxury brands that are in the hard luxury sector all right then you add another uh 200 from other land luxuries i mean other luxury sectors but that are not you know just your typical caring and lvmh type and look at the common thread uh within the flagship brands there what they've done is they've always made sure to maintain the, the, the value and the codes of the flagship brands. Um, Louis Vuitton, uh, you know, obviously they've veered more towards, uh, you know, celebrity, but it's very clear in its positioning that they're going to give you avant-garde clothing, avant-garde um, uh, leather goods, all right? You're always going to be at the top, even if it's fashion, it's going to be at the top end of fashion. When you look at Brunella Cuccinelli, yes, maybe it's the shades of gray, I mean, shades of gray and beige, but guess what? You touch the material. There's a consistency. All right. Every single one of the brands we have mentioned that are successful are consistent in their values, consistent in their positioning, consistent in their product quality, consistent in their customer experience. You know what you can expect today and tomorrow. And you do want to be surprised in terms of the merchandise lineup, but you know that the experience will be consistent. Right. And that's why these brands are investing more in, in model brand stores. That's where you're seeing the, the immense growth of model brand stores, because those are the stores that can embrace the brand and convey the brand and what's unique and special about it to customers versus department stores. 
Absolutely, because you're controlling the experience, even in the results of all these brands out there. The other thing that stood out was you're absolutely right. They're paying more attention on direct to client. They're opening more monobrand stores. And that has created pressure on the wholesale channel because, you know, department stores are suffering as a result because they're typically the points of discovery for right. a lot of uh, customers entering the experience. Not to say that department stores are not important, but uh, a lot of these brands are shifting their emphasis to direct to customer and these monobrand stores give them full control of their environment. And I can tell you, uh, when you walk into these stores, I mean, uh, if you look at Madison Avenue, Rodeo Drive, uh, you go to Bond Street, New Bond Street in London, you go to Champs-Élysées, you look at the window displays, you look at uh, the, the minute you enter the store, the, the fragrance and the visual appeal, they control all of that and it is part and parcel of the theater and the romance of luxury. Yeah. So how can competitors like LVMH, Caring, and Richemont and their constituent brands weather this market? Oh, I mean, I have no doubt about that. I'm, I'm a very big believer in long term. You know, uh, you'll have ups and downs. And, you know, think about 2008, 2009. I mean, most of these brands were on the ropes too at that point. I mean, the entire world uh, was uh, suffering. The finance industry got us all uh, out of whack. And what did these people do? Smart luxury marketers invested in the brand. They invested in, uh, you know, uh, getting more better leases. What is LVMH doing? Instead of walking away from retail and bricks and mortar, they're basically investing more in stores. Same thing with Hermes. They're investing more in stores. They're taking advantage of times like this to lock up good leases, uh, corners, uh, and you know, making sure that they have uh, you know, favorable terms. So I have no doubt that brands like these are built uh, to last, as Jim Collins said. And whatever they're doing now, they're basically making sure that they're, uh, they've got the lineup in terms of product, and they've also paying attention to talent. Because I think the biggest challenge I see to luxury brands down the road is not just merchandise or retail, but it's actually talent, whether it's the manufacturing end of the talent or it's the retail end of the talent. That is going to be a challenge because, uh, you know, as I said before, not too many youngsters in France and Italy want to continue what their parents or grandparents or the forebears did and work right. with their hands. So that is going to be a challenge yeah, because issue. luxury is all about working with your hands. Yeah, but the other thing is, do you think that these companies have become over-dependent on the sugar high that comes from boosting sales by extending their ranges into the lower end, more accessible price points, paired to Hermes, which has far less exposure in that segment? Do you think now that the aspirational customer is sort of pulling away do you think that's going to continue to hurt these conglomerates and do they need to make up for it on the higher end um it's a very good question scott um i think bain had that number um the top five percent account for 40 percent of all yeah, right luxury goods sales around the world right um look there's companies such as Chanel, which have doubled their prices 
in the last three years, and that's caused some angst in China and some key markets. And uh, a lot of these companies use pricing to basically uh, boost their organic revenue. They also have to put up with foreign currency, foreign exchange fluctuations, and that is a big uh, kind of uh, pressure on their earnings because you know it goes up and down and you, it messes with your uh, numbers. But I, I just feel like you know we have reached a point where you can't just limit luxury to you know one brand that's owned by a family and they're okay mm -hmm. with limiting sales. I think uh, Rolls Royce can do that because its parent is BMW. BMW has God knows how many uh, product lines, uh, and yet their sales are through the roof. Uh, Bentley decided to do the opposite. They went for uh, volume, and they scrapped their top-end um, Mulsanne uh, flagship, and they focused on the Flying Spur. And as a result, they sold 15,000 cars. In both cases, in Rolls-Royce and Bentley's case, their number one selling car is the SUV. That's what it is. Yeah. So you have to move with the times. Um, the aspirational customer was always there for luxury, but they didn't drive that much sales as they've done in the last 15 years, 15 to 20 years. And I attribute that to Mr. Arno. Bernard Arno is responsible for that because you know he kept on buying all these brands from these families who couldn't support their legacies. And then the only way he could monetize that was basically extend those brands into every single uh, product line possible. You know, take a take a manufacturer like Berluti uh, makes shoes, and then they went into lifestyle, and every single brand is becoming a lifestyle brand. Now that is going to be a challenge, because you know within a company like LVMH, you've got seventy five different lifestyles. Uh, how is that possible, right? Yeah. But uh, they're also very keen marketers, and they have proper positionings for each one of their brands. So I'm very confident that that aspirational customer will come back. You do need the aspiration because today's aspirational, if they manage their finances right, is tomorrow's affluent and ultra wealthy. And yeah. so you, we have to always keep that pipeline. And you're dealing with a different generation now. You can't rely on the baby boomers or the silent generation or even Gen X. You are relying on millennials and Gen Zs whose attitudes are very different from their parents and their older siblings because they shop more based on values and tribal values especially but also sustainability governance and factors like that where they're extra sensitive to the impact of their uh, purchases so you cannot ignore that market because already in china millennials and gen z account for 60 percent of sales of luxury goods right so that ship has sailed already what these brands have to do is focus on maintaining their aura and their positioning and not dilute their brand value in the eyes of consumers uh, when you're really rich you're not going to basically be buying a low-end louis vuitton product so you have to think all right when you're really affluent even within the louis vuitton family where are they pushing the top-end product? Think about it. It's the trunk. Who uses trunks anymore? So what do they do? They emphasize perfumes, and now they've got the watch line where they used to basically have affordable watches 
Mr. Arno's youngest son has come into the business, yep. scrapped all those watches, yep. and basically he's elevated the one or two yep. uh, watch brands within Louis Vuitton and make sure that that's super expensive and create desire for that. So within these brand groups, they'll have to have tiered uh, positionings uh, for their products. And I feel like the aspirational consumer will come back, but where will they go? I mean, as long as they're not replaced by AI, that is another different discussion. <laughs> that's, that's for another That's, for that's another a different podcast. discussion. But yeah. you're looking at China, the middle class, if, if, if they weather the real estate uh, maelstrom, they will come back to luxury because they define themselves uh, by the products and labels they own. Remember that China lost its history in the communist upheaval, right? Yeah. So how do people identify themselves? by the labels they buy a uh, country like india the middle class is growing and you have all these multimillionaires who travel and what do they do when they travel they buy luxury goods so as long as we keep the world moving and travel going uh, and conflicts limited to certain spheres you're okay lvmh just recently purchased that luxury eyewear brand barton Pereira. And I'm wondering, Bernard No is so smart. I'm wondering if he is already seeing that this aspirational buyer is starting to pull away. Maybe, you know, by purchasing luxury eyewear as one of these ways to sort of generate revenue from this younger millennial Gen Z audience who want a sort of entryway into the into the luxury world of uh, eyewear, and they perhaps afford that. I thought that acquisition was really smart. Absolutely. Um, look, eyewear could be the new lipstick. Um, caring already, you know, they had licenses, I think, with Sophila. And then when that agreement ended, they launched their own caring eyewear division, right? So eyewear has always been uh, a very lucrative uh, licensing option for luxury brands. Um, Bernard Arnault's strategy is slightly different from other luxury brands because Look, he understands that you have to feed the beast. His is a publicly quoted company. And, you know, we are talking about Europe's second most, I mean, they, they took a hit. It used to be the most valuable company, but it's the second or third most valuable company now. But a company who, which sells thousands of products, not one of which you need to live with, not one of them. They're all uh, wants, they're not needs. And all his products are aspirational, uh, even at the top end, the super rich want to be part of the club, right? So for him to grow, he's always going to look to acquire new companies that come with ready-built, ready-made audiences uh, that are uh, in the premium segment. And then you can take them one or two steps up and then you upgrade them as they uh, enter a new life stage. So um, if you look at what Caring is doing, Caring went and bought Creed, uh, which right. was, you know, a 200 plus year old yeah, right. perfume company owned by uh, an Anglo-French family, uh, which sold a majority stake to uh, TPG, I think, that Texas Pacific group, you know, they, no, Blackstone, I'm sorry, they stole it to Blackstone and or BlackRock. I always get confused between the two. Yeah. But, but when what these guys did was, they injected a little money in the operations, and then within two years or so, they went and sold the brand to 
caring for, I think, $3.6 billion or so. That is literally, Creed has 37 store, stores around the world, and it's got hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And they wanted to go into the really high-end business. So uh, if look, you look at caring, uh, the, the CEO went and uh, made a pitch for a CAA, which is, you know, uh, a firm that represents really movie, movie actors, yeah. right? Yeah. Creative Arts Agency. So he's spending seven plus billion dollars buying that. All of these folks are looking at the world of entertainment. They're looking at the world of fashion and they're looking at all these experiences to come into their family and then upgrade them. So I would look at, I would continue. Look, eventually, depending on how Ralph Lauren goes, that'll be snapped up by someone, one of these big conglomerates. Uh, you know, you, you've got all these people eyeing future acquisitions because they're sources of customers who are right at the cusp of luxury uh, and they need a little nudge to come into the family. So when you look at Barton Pereira, uh, you're looking at uh, you know an LVMH strategy to say, all right, how can I leverage their manufacturing for all my lines out there, right? What's to stop you from having a Laura Piana uh, pair of glasses? Think about it. Uh, I mean, so you look at a manufacturing facility uh, that Barton Pereira has, and then you scale that to all the luxury brands in your group. So moves like that are very, very smart, but they're also essential if you have to grow. If you can't grow organically, you have to go out and make purchases. And that's what LVMH does. They bought uh, Tiffany for 15.6 or $15.8 billion, right? They took on a boatload of debt, but they got that brand. And uh, you know they've changed the positioning of Tiffany. They put a lot of pressure on the internal executives, but guess what? The strategy is paying off. Tiffany sales have gone up and they're repositioning it for a new generation. So LVMH will continue to acquire companies even beyond the lifespan of uh, Mr. Arno, his five kids, if as long as they don't have a, <laughs> a feud, which I'm very curious to see how the group will stay together after the patriarch. But I have a, a very, uh, I'm very bullish on their strategy. Speaking of bullish, are you bullish about the luxury market in 2024? Absolutely bullish. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be launching Luxury Roundtable. I put all the chips on the table. Have you seen any recent insights at all or from the uh, analysts? If I don't look to analysts and journalists to uh, see the long-term view because both of them uh, focus more on the short term. Uh, I look to luxury brands for their views on the long term because, you know, if you look at uh, Hermes, uh, they've given a positive outlook. Yes, they've acknowledged the challenges. But those are short-term challenges. Uh, you know, we can all be pessimistic. Uh, if you remember John Maynard Keynes, he was that British economist, yes, right? Of course. And uh, once he was questioned about, you know, certain forecasts. And he said, you know what? In the long run, we're all dead. Right, that's right. So, that's right. so I mean, you know, these are, there are ups and downs. And that's what, you know, these luxury brands are survivors. Most of them have... Uh, been around for more than a century. They've seen off two world wars. They've seen off regional wars. They've seen off pandemics. Twice they've seen off, uh, you know, the Spanish flu. And then you've got the COVID 
a, a pandemic. I mean, they've seen off a lot. Yeah. Oh, what's happened is that, you know, we live in an age of 24-7 news, and then we get caught in these cycles, and journalists say, oh, my God, uh, you know, this industry is not doing it. Obviously, the industry is not doing well. China, basically, the, the top five Chinese real estate companies, they went and over-speculated, and guess what? The top number one company, Evergrande, owes $300 billion in debt. 80% yeah. of Chinese savings go into real estate. The Chinese people, unfortunately, made a bet on the wrong industry. That's not to say that the Chinese people won't recover. It's a very big market. They're very smart people. They're very sophisticated in what they uh, buy. Uh, they have the same tools that we have in the West. I'm gung-ho there. Look at the Middle East. Look at Dubai. I mean, Dubai is flush with cash. Yeah. Look at the... Uh, the people who have moved there, not just the Europeans, but even the Russians moved there. There's so much money there going into hotels, going to finance, going into building regional operations. Saudi Arabia is competing with Dubai uh, to build Neom City and position Riyadh and Jeddah as uh, competing centers for corporate uh, headquarters. Um, you look at, um, you know, um, Israel will come back no matter what happens. They're their center of technology and excellence. Uh, center of finance. I mean, you're looking at all these pockets of growth. Japan, look at all the numbers coming out from every single uh, luxury conglomerate. Ja Japanese luxury sales are on the up. So if you look at the big picture, yes, maybe they didn't deliver double-digit growth, but they delivered growth. And right. to me, that's how you look at luxury. You don't always expect luxury to... because. If you have too much growth in luxury, it's not luxury anymore. It's too common. Right. So maybe pauses like this are beneficial because you don't want too many Rolls Royces on the road because then it's not a Rolls Royce. Then it's just another car. Yeah. I mean, I'm bullish myself, but I don't think it's going to kick in until the, the, the second half of next year. But if you look at the cycles, you know, the periods of the strongest growth and luxury, it seems that. 2009 to 2012, the post-financial crisis, and since 2020, the post-COVID, those seem to be, and, and before that, those seem to be the highest and strongest growth periods for luxury. So that's why I'm still optimistic. I don't think, it's, like I said, it's going to kick in until the second half of next year. And this is, and, and like you said earlier in the podcast, that they're benchmarking it against the COVID period versus pre-COVID. And um, so I think that's, that, that's a little bit deceiving. Um, but I do, I do think, you know, that the, based on these cycles, this will continue, uh, the growth will still be there as well. Yes. You know, the thing is, when you have, you have crises, what happens is you constrain spending in one part of the economy and move the money to another, or you don't spend at all. What happens is then you have a burst of spending and that pent up demand skews the results. And that's what happened after 2008, 2009. And the you know the you had great growth in 2011, 12, and all that. Same thing in the pandemic, because you couldn't travel. Guess what happened? Uh, last year was a fabulous year for travel, and now you're seeing. Uh, I just read the report uh, a few days ago that uh, air travel has become cheaper to Europe all of a sudden. Right? right. Okay. So all right. So people have got that travel bug out of their system, but come uh, come Christmas time, come. Hanukkah time, guess what? You're going to go to family, you're going to meet them, right? And whether you're going by car or you're going by plane, you're going to take gifts. 
so that shopping cycle will continue. As long as the brands understand that you're going to have some lean years and some strong years, you have to have good cash flow. You have to have this element of surprise in your product lineup. I'm always curious to see, uh, you know, when I visit websites, all right, what's new for the next season? But not just that, how have you innovated? Like, what are you doing in terms of your materials? How are you making sure that, you know, this car, will it require, forget the electric batteries and all that, but will we ever need a tube in a car tire, right? And that you eliminate the whole need to fix punctures. A luxury brand should be doing that. I'll leave you with this one thought about cars. Um, a while ago, um, I was, uh, uh, we did a story on Ferrari. And, and so uh, someone asked, I, was, I forget who asked, that you know, Ferrari has got this goal of turning all their cars to electric motors, I think, by right. 2030 or 2035, I forget which year. So I asked the question. So I said, but people love the Ferrari for the roar of the engine. So you know what they told me? That when you turn on the ignition of the Ferrari, it'll be a recording. And as okay. you press the pedal, it'll go up and down. You will not skip a beat. It'll, it'll be a recording of the engine. That was right? key. Otherwise, the, that was the whole, that's the whole point, the feeling of and the sound of the engine. Exactly. So that, to me, is how luxury innovates. As long as luxury brands understand that, that you have to innovate. You're not a luxury brand because you're expensive. You're a luxury brand because you are creative and you innovate. And that is what they have to keep front and center for growth. Agree. And they have to touch all the senses of the, uh, of the customer. Well, Mickey, this was fun. This was a great first episode of luxury stance and i'm excited about uh next month's we'll see what the what the topic is but this was great and uh any listeners out there have any questions you could email any of us thanks mickey thank you scott and i look forward to the next uh uh podcast with you i welcome all the folks who have listened to this podcast to uh you know tune in for the next one thank you mm -hmm.